Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Building Resilience series. Today, we are looking through the lenses of sociology and psychology to answer two questions. How can organizational culture act as a shock absorber and help companies rebound from shocks? And what makes individuals resilient? Together with Hagi Rao, Professor of Organizational Behavior and Human Resources at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, we will take a trip through the history of pandemics and other natural disasters to collect lessons learned. We touch on the implications of such crises on things like immigration reform and diversity and inclusion activities. I know you will enjoy this talk. Support the podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share your thoughts in the comment section below. In the classes I teach, I actually tell people, in the end, organizationally, what are the cultural protections that actually make sure you're resilient in the face of crises like pandemic. If you were to ask me to summarize it quickly, I would think you use the word muscle. For me, those three muscles are caring muscle, caring for your employees, colleagues, and customers, sharing muscle, sharing ideas, resources, mistakes instead of hoarding them. And my point is only when you care and only when you share can you dare. How can you dare otherwise? People think, oh, we want companies to dare. How are companies going to reinvent? Not because you set up a silly incentive system. They have to care. They have to share. And all caring and sharing at the organizational level will get you from the room called fear to the room called hope. Individually, your best self is going to get you from the room called fear to the room called hope. Organizationally, you have to walk because caring, then sharing, and then daring becomes possible. We often think of daring as, oh my God, taking great entrepreneurial risks. For me, daring is much more simpler than that. In organizations, for me, daring means initiative. You're not waiting for your boss to tell you things. You have initiative. That is what you want. So when you ask me, what does it take at the organizational level? That's the short summary I would give. And Everything depends on how strong the caring muscle is, how strong the sharing muscle is. Only then can we make predictions about the strength of the daring muscle. Am I making sense here? 100%. The two papers that I sent to you, and you're absolutely right, what they realize is, what they do is they actually emphasize what you refer to as the social, that is the interorganizational beyond the individual organization. You're absolutely right. The reason is there was a lovely sociologist called E.H. Carr. Um, I forget the initials, Carr I think is the name. And he made a fascinating observation. And he said, you know, there are natural disasters. And his point is natural disasters become catastrophes only when cultural protections collapse. And I was always sort of struck by that. And I, I remember reading it years ago and I thought to myself, oh my God, you know, he's actually thinking of culture as like a shock absorber. Mm, uh, actually not just culture, but cultural protections. And then you say, well, what kind of protections is he talking about? And then you think, oh my God, he's actually talking about norms. 
norms, uh, you know, commonly agreed rules of society that we all sort of belong. But he's also thinking about how individuals make sense of the world. And so that was what got us interested uh, in contagious diseases and Spanish flu. So one of my close collaborators is Heinrich Graeber, who's Norwegian. And we'd done work on Norway before. And then Norway is a beautiful country to study because it's small. They have excellent records. Norway has a coastline. Uh, Norway has farmland. Uh, and, uh, you know, we then thought, let's actually study Spanish flu in Norway. Because what we wanted to do was we wanted to think of Spanish flu as a shock to a community. And the question is, what is it that allows a community to rebound or what is it that actually leads the community to collapse? So we were looking at these norms. And one of the things we quickly realized is, oh, my God, you know, if you're in Norway, you experience two kinds of shocks in its history. One is weather shocks. The interesting thing about weather shocks is you can't blame people. God caused it, weather caused it, whatever. And what's interesting is we realized that when people attribute a disaster to an act of nature, what it does is it actually strengthens bonds of cooperation because your threat is out there. And what we noticed was People responded by building like lots of cooperatives and the like and so forth, as we show. But the amazing thing with Spanish flu was you get it from other people. And so what do you do? You blame other people. Now, imagine a small Norwegian commune, just small little communities, you know, maybe a couple of hundred people. You probably know most of them. You're maybe related to most of them. And you can imagine what happens in a small community. Suddenly the church is closed. There are no schools. None of that is happening. And then your people come and visit you and somebody gets sick. And who do you suspect? And you say, oh, my God, I met my first cousin or my, I met my second cousin. And you can see the new nursery rhymes they're teaching kids about influenza. Uh, you know, uh, they, they call it a bird called Enza. So very quickly, what you realize is when people blame other people, you have a problem because immediately there is distrust and that distrust has long lasting consequences. And which this is, this is fascinating. And it's fascinating how in the end uh, you realized how the disease got transmitted from France and then to Norway uh, during yeah. the war and so on. That, that was fascinating. And it, I was it, thinking it, of how this relates with what we're going through right now, because it feels similar and it's not. It's not because now we have media, which we already knew. I was in Singapore when um, uh, the, the pandemic started. Uh, we landed in Singapore on the 9th of, of January, on the 20th, China was closed. On the 22nd, there was the Chinese New Year, but uh, you already had a lot of travel uh, due to the Chinese New Year. Uh, so we already knew this is coming. When I, when I came back to Europe in March and I told my friends, hey, this is coming, everyone was laughing at us. And it's very strange that even though you have this amount of information and you know a pandemic is coming, still people don't get prepared 
talking about the cultural protection and talking about the norms that are here and believing that you are invincible. And I was very curious to to see how you see this year through your, the lens of your research. You know, that's a really interesting sort of question. Uh, you know, you're sort of asking a very interesting question. Why are people blind to current threats? And why are people blind to history? Um, you're absolutely right about Spanish flu. It bears some resemblance to today. It spread very quickly. And one reason it spread is, remember, it was against the background of World War I. So you actually had soldiers who were moving around. So, you know, one theory is that soldiers went overseas and came back and brought the flu to America. And in France, uh, particularly, there were regiments that were multinational. I think they even included people from countries outside of Europe, I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So you can imagine the breeding ground scenario that's there. And very quickly, it's sort of telescoped. Now, here, uh, you had international travelers being the vectors, but obviously you had a government uh, regime in China where they didn't share information, so people didn't know what the threat was. So, you know, you're afraid of crying wolf too quickly. You know, so you want to be kind of careful before you declare a public health emergency. So a lot of people were, got, were caught by surprise. Um, and I think often what diseases do, and this has happened not just in terms of flu, Julian, most diseases are actually overlooked because it's very hard to categorize them. So, you know, uh, for example, in America, so, so you only notice things when you have cues that are very discrepant. So in America, for example, how did they notice uh, what happened in New York? Suddenly in Queens, uh, elderly people were dying. And they said, Jesus, what the hell is happening? And then one of the doctors looks at them and says, oh my God, they were outdoors most of the time. What were they doing? They were gardening. And suddenly they think, oh, the mosquito must be actually the vector. Now, now, the way, even though they knew the mosquito was the vector, look at the way they made sense. The, you know, in those days, the diagnostic procedure of epidemiologists was, if you want to ask me what kind of infectious disease there is, tell me which part of the world are you talking about? So when you talk New York, so their view is they have an atlas of the world made in 1950. So if you notice most infectious and contagious diseases, they all have place names. West Nile virus, Venezuelan virus, uh, on and on and on. So all that you got to say is, well, where did it happen? If it's in Egypt, it's got to be West Nile. If it's near Venezuela, it's near Venezuela. So the people in Queens, very quickly, they said, what kind of Virus could it be? And then they looked at all the viruses in America and they said it's one of them, St. Louis encephalitis. St. Louis is close to New York. But what's interesting is the test they did. So what they did was, see, viruses actually belong to many categories. So for example, you have a family of viruses called flavivirus, that means yellow. When you do a simple test, it turns yellow, but it's a family of viruses. It could be St. Louis encephalitis. It could be 10 different versions. But if your model is everything is determined by your place of location, you say West Nile virus. 
Who said that? Human health professionals said that. Now, who was the person? Now, who also is affected by viruses? Birds, animals. So veterinarians are very interested. So there's this woman who's a pathologist in the Bronx Zoo in New York. So she hears the diagnosis in that what happened in New York was St. Louis encephalitis. And she says, that doesn't make sense. Because if it's St. Louis encephalitis, it shouldn't be killing these kinds of birds. She's the only person who can do a double-blind experiment. You say it's the virus, she will tell you it should kill this bird, it should save that bird. She has so many species in her zoo, right? So she realizes that. She calls the New York Health Department. What do you think they tell her? She says, hi, I'm the veterinarian at the Bronx Zoo. I'm confused by your diagnosis. What do you think is the response of the human health people? How do they look upon veterinary doctors? Not as doctors, that's for sure. Right. Lower status. It's like, hey, you're dealing with birds, buddy. We got bigger fish to fry. Now, who did they send the samples to when they sent it to the CDC? They sent it to Fort Collins, which is called the Center for Vector-Borne Diseases. These people are like Navy SEALs of this type of disease. So if you ask them, they also are thinking geographically. So they do some simple tests and they say it's St. Louis encephalitis. But this woman persists. She tries to contact them for 28 times or something like that. On the 25th or 26th time, she gets through. 20 plus times, if I recall, she calls. Uh, and then on one of those attempts, she actually gets through. And then the, in the meantime, other people are doing analyses because in America, you have something called unexplained deaths. If you can't explain the deaths, the tissue samples are sent to different universities. And people said, oh my God, it's actually West Nile virus. Now, this, so the CDC did make a mistake. Now, they'll tell you, actually, it didn't mean very much because the solution is still the same. You have to spray. But what if it wasn't? So now compare that with how another disease that people knew about also confused people. This is hantavirus. In hantavirus emerged in America in what's called the Four Corners area, New Mexico, Arizona, those in Nevada, that area. And... Uh, how did people notice it? Young, able-bodied people are dropping dead. One guy who's a great athlete, suddenly his lungs give way, he dies. In his funeral, his fiance, who's also an athlete, she dies. People are thinking, this is crazy. How can young, healthy people die? Now, in the meantime, all of this is occurring where, mostly where the native Indians stay. Now, the others who stay in the big cities, they think of this as a strange Indian disease. They call it Navajo flu. Now, you can you imagine what can happen? So how did the CDC get involved? Dentists said, hey, we don't want to see Navajo flu patients because we can get infected. But the woman whom they put in charge of that investigation is a brilliant woman. She's an epidemiologist, but ironically, as we found out, her undergrad degree, or when she was an undergraduate at Princeton, she wrote a thesis on Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions. So she had a broader idea of structures of knowledge and all that. 
So she took a team from Atlanta, where the CDC was, to the Four Corners area. But look at the way she composed the team. She said, you know what? I actually want geneticists on my team. Okay? I also want MDs on my team. I also want experts in public health and epidemiologists on the team. So she had a team with all three specialties and anything that they diagnosed or were thinking about, all three groups had to agree. So remember, the standards of proof are different. You're a geneticist, you're working with very small material, you're an epidemiologist, you're looking at diffusion, you're an MD, you're looking at things. But what did she do? Look at the way she thought. Now, the interesting thing is there is another kind of flu, another hantavirus, but that hantavirus typically affects another part of the body. So usually the kidneys. Here it's affecting the lungs, it's causing pulmonary edema. Why is that happening? Nobody knew. So what this woman does is the leader of this CDC team, she puts the MD in charge of answering phone calls. A lot of people are calling and saying, we think this is what is happening. We think that is what is happening. Why does she do that? She wants the M MD to separate signal from noise. If you put an ordinary clerk and say, listen to all the phone calls and tell us, you will be buried in noise. The MD is saying most of it is noise. One or two signals are there, and so you're protecting everybody from noise. Very important. Now, the other thing she realized is, look at how smart she is. She says, wait a minute. You know, our epidemiologists are going and talking to people and finding out. The geneticists are thinking of what to do in the lab and what tests and whatever. And then she realizes, wait a minute, you know, the only health people I'm talking to are Western health experts. I should talk to native Indian health experts. Maybe they might know something. So she talks to what are called medicine men. And they say, she says, what do you think is happening? And they say, you know, actually when there is a lot of rain, there are all these like nuts that grow up, uh, you know, and they're eaten by the rats and all of that. And the rats' feces get aerosolized and spread into the air. And that's the reason why, you know, in our custom, we actually tell people if there are rats in a house, immediately leave it because you're going to get this disease. So they do the tests and they find out the Navajo medicine men are right. That's exactly what happened. Now look at how she, she is thinking about it, how wide her lens was. Most people don't have that wide a lens. Look at what she's doing organizationally. She ran everything like a seminar, she told us, because every idea had to meet molecular geneticist tests and MDs test. So if only it made group sense to one group of people, that's not enough. So that's the reason it becomes very difficult to track diseases that are zoonotic, that actually spread from one species to another. Avian flu is an example. COVID is another example. So these kinds of cross-species things are pretty hard to plan. Now, I sent you the second paper, and the, that second paper, again, 
Am I a marketing researcher? It got published in their marketing journal called the Journal of Consumer Research, which is their top journal in consumer behavior. And it all started because I talked to my colleagues in marketing at Stanford. Many of them are my friends. We cook together. We drink wine together. We're a small place, so you're constantly talking. And I said, hey, guys, like, how come you nobody in your field studies the effect of contagious diseases? Like, you know, it's almost as though in your mind you think people buy things when they see advertisements, when they get a coupon or whatever. Not that that's unimportant. And I said, so suppose people are going from Stanford, California to San Francisco on Caltrain and you listen to 25 people sneeze. Isn't that going to affect what you do? And they said, yeah. And then I used to work at the Kellogg School before. So I called some of my friends there. They got very interested. We got hold of a PhD student and very quickly we got into this literature and we said, what happens? Now, think of this. What we wanted to understand, we wanted to move from the social to the psychological. So the Spanish flu study was social. The Journal of Consumer Research study is psychological. What so if you asked people at that time, see, when you when I present you with contagious disease cues, Yulia, you're not thinking through the head, you're thinking emotionally. Until then, the belief was, if somebody was presented with contagious disease cues, their emotional reaction is disgust. You shrink, because you know the source of contamination. So when we actually read all of this, we thought, wait a minute, that seems to be very oversimplified. How can people use one emotion? Usually we have multiple emotions. So we thought, okay, what kinds of emotions are possible? Disgust is on the negative side. What are the other negative emotions? Ang anger is one, fear is one. We were interested in the combination of disgust and fear because disgust means you know the source. Fear means you don't know the outcome. And that combination is very important. So what we did in those papers is experimentally we show, you know, if you have disgust, people recoil. They don't buy anything because they're aversive. If you only have fear, people love affiliation, safety in numbers. That's why people who are afraid going through crises, some of them, they buy lots of things. It's all a way of affiliating. You're laughing. Now, what happens when you have disgust and fear mixed together? That is when we thought there is a pre asymmetric preference. You only like the familiar. You don't like the new at all. Now, we show this in a lab, and people will say, that's good, but like, is that real? So we had to look at what real people do. So we looked at thousands of households. But when you're looking at thousands of households and what they buy, we need obviously a clear hypothesis. So our hypothesis was, hey, our lab, te lab tests and studies show people like the familiar. That means if you give people a very familiar brand, it shouldn't make any difference between different versions of that brand. So the brand we thought of in America was Oreo cookies. There are many versions of Oreo cookies, classic Oreo cookies, new versions of Oreo cookies. So we thought, you know, what would flu do if our argument is right? People would buy more Oreo cookies and it doesn't matter which version it is, was our hypothesis, because everybody knows about the brand. What did we discover? Every time there's a flu outbreak in America, people buy more classic Oreo cookies. 
ones. Newfangled ones die. So I'm, pre well, I'm presenting this at one of the conferences with our colleagues, with economists and everything at, uh, uh, you know, sociologists and psychologists at Stanford. And somebody said, this is very interesting, but what are the practical implications? So I looked at this person and I said, I can think of two. So he said, what? I said, first, I said, don't do immigration reform in flu season anywhere. You lose. Second, while I don't have the evidence to show this to you now, one implication is if you want diversity in your companies, diverse kinds of employees, men, women, different nationalities, et cetera, different genders, the best way to do that is to stop hiring during flu season. Because if you hire people during flu season, who will you hire? Remember, you like the familiar. You will hire people who look like you. So now you can see the social and the psychological. Now, what this leads me to, Yulia, is study one showed cultural protections matter. Study two shows people have these kinds of biases like the familiarity bias. Now, your question is, what does all of this mean for resilience in a post-pandemic age? Now, there's a funny story about the research on resilience. Interestingly, there were a number of people in the Minnesota area who began the research on resilience in the 1950s. They were social scientists, but strikingly many of them had fought in World War II in the Battle of the Bulge. The Americans actually had to fall back because of the German onslaught, if you remember. And then they had to fight back. So they were interested in resilience. And in the research on resilience, we can mention scholars who studied them. But the person I want you and your viewers to think about is a young boy. He was the person who made all these social scientists think about resilience. Who was this boy? He was a young boy of 12. His mother had mental problems. His father was an alcoholic. So what was his house? A tsunami. Every day there is a tsunami, emotional tsunami. But the researchers realized, but every day the boy would come to school wearing a clean uniform and with lunch, two slices of white bread with nothing in between. He would pack them and get them and they would say, how is he able to do that every day? It's like you're in a daily war and then you come to school and you're able to like, and they were like very impressed. And that's how the research on resilience started. Now, what does this mean for organizations is the real question in terms of resilience. And the first thing we've got to ask ourselves is, what are the cultural protections in organizations to enable people to respond to shocks? So that's one question companies have to ask. The second question companies have to ask is, at an individual level, what makes people resilient? Let me start first at the individual level because it's very accessible. See, what does a crisis do? Like 
What does a pandemic do? What a pandemic does in my view is it awakens both disgust and fear. So you're in a room called fear. What happens when you're in a room called fear? We become narrow, tunnel vision, fear narrows. We don't like to take risks. We like to do the most familiar things. So can you innovate? Can you do any of those things? Very hard. So what is it we need to do? We need to take people from the room called fear to a room called hope. How do we do that? You need a passageway. You can't just go. So you need a connecting doorway, right? Otherwise, you can't get to the door, the new room. What is the connecting door? And this is where... I and a number of my colleagues, my colleague Bob Sutton, with whom at the moment I'm in the process of writing a book, uh, we actually wrote an article in the McKinsey Quarterly. I can send it to you. It's called From a Room Called Fear to a Room Called Hope. And what we sort of argue in the article, Yulia, uh, is this means there is a new psychological contract between the boss and the subordinate. Because what has the pandemic done? We are not working together. Look at you and me. I mean, we're doing everything by Zoom. So if remember, if you're a boss, you cannot monitor your employee. And I'm your employee. I have to manage my own motivation. How is all of that going to happen? Plus, we can only do, you know, do this in short bursts. You can't spend the whole day on Zoom. We'd be dead. That's additional so, stress on uh, leaders and organizations, not knowing right. that this right. will happen. That's right, Julian. So what's the new psychological contract? Our thinking, Bob Sutton and I believe, that the new psychological contract is, hey, people, employees will bring their best self to work. Not your tired self, not your angry self. Not your afraid self, but best self. What's the job of the boss? To give the employee opportunities to express his or her best self. What's the advantage for the boss? If you are bringing your best self to work, do I need to monitor you? Do I need to observe you all the time? No. Do I need to worry about your motivation? No, you are motivated yourself, right? With your best self. And what is our career Improving the sphere of our best life is what our career is. Now, what is the best self? Self that is accountable? No, no, the best self is very simple. Uh, you know, there are different ways to reach it, but the simplest is if I ask you, Yulia, what are the three words that best describe you? You know, and when you think of the three words, don't think of abstract nouns. Don't say integrity. You know, I don't know what that means. Think of actions. So think of verbs and adverbs so I can imagine the actions very quickly. So three words. And then hopefully these three words will tell you something about yourself, where you're performing at your best, but yet you feel exhausted. So typically what they may ask people to do is to take a little smartphone and have share a little video, two minutes, 
of the time in your life when you felt you were at your best self. What is that? The best, you know, you were accomplished, you felt stretched, you were exhausted, you were tired too. What was that? That's the employee's best self. Now, what's the job of the boss to help the employee realize this? Now, what do we need to do to help the boss realize it? We have to help the boss get in touch with his or her best helping self. Remember the time you helped somebody. You know, it could be your brother, it could be your sister, it could be your nephew, it could be your niece, mom, dad, subordinate, colleague, we don't care who, describe. Now both people are cued in. The boss is aware of the best helping self. He knows, he or she knows the employee's best self. The employee knows the boss, boss's best helping self and they can figure out ways where the employee can express them. But this psychological contract does take time to build and you were just talking about a journey. How long does it take? You you ask an excellent question, Yulia, almost like a Romanian mathematician. I know a number of Romanian mathematicians. They're very good math people from Romania. Uh, so, yeah, they're really good. So now you ask a great question. All of this will take time. Can you do it faster? So this is a study my colleague, Lindy Greer, who's now at Michigan, and another doctoral student who is now a professor at Dartmouth, Jennifer Daniels and I did. What did we do? We took um, 41, we took 82 new ventures. We randomly put them into two groups. Each of these are startup teams, four people, tech startups. So in the treatment condition, there were 41 teams. So we went to each of these teams and we said, you know what, to each person, please choose, you know, we didn't do video, uh, you know, best self in that formal way I described it. We just asked people, can you choose a job title that best describes your best strengths? Choose any title. Take five minutes to choose it and another 10 minutes to tell people. Share it. So people chose titles, guru of cybersecurity, defender of the source code, you know, names like that. Which teams do you think did better in terms of the speed with which they developed a product prototype and the quality of the prototype? Teams where people chose their job titles. Why? You choose your job title, you feel a sense of ownership. But if you tell me you're the guru of cybersecurity, I have an expectation that you're good at it. That means you feel an obligation to me too. And you feel an obligation to yourself because you just chose that title. So you need to live up to the title that you chose for yourself. Exactly. So what were we doing? We were activating their best selves, but without a lot of procedure. So that is at the individual level. At the organizational level, I think the real challenge for organizations is it doesn't matter whether it's a pandemic or whether it's any threat. Organizations have to learn how to expect the unexpected. And that's very hard. Can this be trained? Can this, um, is it like a muscle that you train, like the um, uh, 12 year old kid you were talking about? Yeah, but, you know, uh, I think it's, see, the thing with organizations is the brain is not individual, it's social. Uh, 
the heart isn't an individual's heart, it is a social heart, right? And that's where the challenge is. How do you expect the unexpected is the big challenge companies face. So if you expect the unexpected, then you have a better chance of being prepared for it. Now, in order to expect the unexpected, this is where we need to get out of our mindset of looking for a lost key like a drunk under a lamp. The key may be somewhere else. You can't keep looking at wherever your light is, which is what people were doing with some of the disease examples I gave you earlier. So you need diverse people and you need diverse levels of the organization to be engaged in and diverse functions. And that is, it's, you know, it's not an easy, easy uh, thing to do because often when you have things like pandemics, you're uncertain of, you have three kinds of uncertainty. One is you don't know what it is. What is it? I don't know. What should I do? I don't know. Even if I do something, what is the outcome of that? I don't know either. So you have three types of uncertainty and that's kind of hard to deal. And that's the reason why preparing for the, or anticipating the unexpected is usually a good thing. And we have to do that regularly in organizations. Um, and we also have to do a lot of this at the leadership level in the organization. See, because uh, I'll be honest with you, and maybe this is the last observation I'll make and I'll take some more questions. This really gets to a huge challenge for leadership. Because see, when you have pandemics, we all are leading when we don't know. See, leading when you know is very different than leading when you don't know. How do we, when we know, how do we lead? What do we do? As my good friend, as my good colleague Frank Flynn says, the way we lead when we know is, he, my colleague Frank calls it the hippopotamus model of leadership. We are like hippopotamuses. What does he mean by that? If you look at a hippopotamus's face, what is the biggest portion of the face? Mouth. What is the smallest portion? Ears, eyes, you get the idea. Now, you can do that when you lead, when you know, because what is the job of a leader? You explain to people, they'll do what you tell them to, hopefully. But when you don't know, can you, a friend, can you be, is it a good idea to open your mouth? Probably not, because you don't know anything. Instead, what should you be like? That's what I think is the elephant model of leadership. Elephants have big ears, small mouth, big trunk, big eyes. You can imagine the big brain they have to and the memory they have. And that is the challenge for leaders. See, the easiest thing in the world is to conclude other people need to be resilient. If we have to be resilient, we have to kill the hippopotamus within us and we have to embrace the elephant within us. And if the leadership is not like elephants, they're like hippopotamuses, you have trouble. Because you can be chasing the wrong problem for all we know. 
I'm going to stop here and ask you, does all of this make sense? Is this useful to you and your viewers and listeners and the like? One, 100%. But I do want to ask you, so you have learned all of this from history, from studies, from research. And I was just listening to a Sam Harris podcast and uh, someone who has the same background in, in, as you was saying that maybe around 2024, we will get back to normal, meaning living with people, understanding them, really socializing and, and being back together again. Do you see it in the same way? Do you think we can get there earlier? How can we reduce the consequences of this year and just do better than we did before? So learn from history, learn from research. That's a very good question, Yulia. My quick answer is... <laughs> Going to normal doesn't mean going back to where we were. That world is over. This is like a new world. Uh, this is the reason, for example, even in the McKinsey Quarterly, I spoke to you about that Bob Sutton and I wrote, one of the things we say is, hey, it's not reopening that's the issue. It's reinvention. And that means what? You have to reinvent companies. And if you have to reinvent companies, it's not like you call all of your employees and say, great, Yulia, let's all go to work today. We will be there physically. No, you have to re-onboard them because the organization is new. It's not like it was before. And that is a very difficult thing. So what I would sort of expect is when you say, how soon will we go back to normal? It actually depends upon... Some areas will go back to normal quicker than the others. Others will take more time. A lot depends upon what's the health infrastructure there, the level of education, the willingness to be vaccinated, a whole number of things. But the big thing it seems to me is uh, what all of this is actually reinforcing is Companies are going to get back faster to reinvention. They're going to be able to reinvent themselves when they actually move from workforce planning to workforce care. It's funny, everybody wants to plan for the workforce, which means what? Developing a silly little forecast. How about caring for your people? They're in pain. They're actually suffering a lot, you need to actually care for them. And if you don't care for them, will they care for you? No. Do you also see a connection between how communities have been built and how maybe a way to better use that sense of community while we were going through this crisis and use that power in organizations? I haven't seen this used so far. No. You, you make a very good point. There are already pre-existing communities that need to be strengthened and activated. See, in a community, this is the other research that we found also in Norway, what matters really is in the end, how many, the diversity of nonprofits you have in a community. So, you know, if you have one nonprofit in the religious sector, another one in sports and drama and on and on and on. So what are these nonprofits? So what you need is 
you, you, you want people to get on the freeway of collaboration. We have to solve these problems together. But in order to get people on the freeway, you need ramps. You can't have one ramp or one type of ramp. You need many ramps. So those nonprofit organizations are ramps or bridges where different people come together. And that's where they meet and that's where they talk and that's what they do. And that's where actually magic happens. Because in the end, it's nonprofits where people experience shared fate. Hey, my community is going to be affected by all of this. So that's the reason all of that matters. And those are the cultural protections we completely miss sight of. See, whenever there is a disaster, what do we do? We rush medicines, we do this, we do that. And then we say, okay, great. Everybody is healthy. But for the place to actually persist, you got to help nonprofits. Are they active? Are they dead? Like what is happening there? Is there any muscle tissue there? Uh, you know, is there any muscle memory? Can we? So all of that we need to do. In the end, everybody says it's very important to have people stand on their own feet. But the thing is, organizations are what help you stand on your feet. Nonprofit organizations. So that's what we need to pay a lot of attention to. And the thing I get disturbed by when I get here talks of the stimulus and all of these kinds of things, a lot of the discussion is about businesses, very little about nonprofits. And that is disappointing because the nonprofits are the unsung heroes. They constantly go and do things. They're like T cells in a body trying to fight off invaders. And we don't invest in that. So, And when you think about the three muscles you were talking, uh, caring, sharing, and daring, I think they embody these this, uh, three concepts quite well. Thank you. So, um, yeah. Thank you. I think it's a good uh, metaphor to leave everyone with, the freeway of uh, collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> Huggy, thank you so much for, uh, for today. My pleasure. Thank you, you for your insights. Uh, you know, my pleasure. You know, uh, lovely chatting with you.